ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد So last time then we started this chapter regarding the angels and how they sprite their wings when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks with the revelation and there was the hadith about how the shayateen of the jinn they climb on top of each other's backs in order to steal some information to eavesdrop from the heavens and perhaps sometimes they are able to hear something and pass it on to the one below and he passes it on to the one below until it reaches the ground and then that one takes it to the magicians the fortune tellers who mix it with multiple lies and then transmit that to the people that narration we mentioned last time so today then we're on the next hadith عن النواس بن سمعان رضي الله عنه قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم إذا أراد الله تعالى أن يوحي بالأمر تكلم بالوحي أخذت السماوات منه رجفة أو قال رعدة شديدة خوفا من الله عز وجل فإذا سمع ذلك أهل السماوات سعقوا وخروا لله سجدا فيكون أول من يرفع رأسه جبريل فيكلمه الله من وحيه بما أراد ثم يمر جبريل على الملائكة كلما مر بسماء سأله ملائكتها ماذا قال ربنا يا جبريل فيقول قال الحق وهو العلي الكبير فيقولون كلهم مثل, مثل ما قال جبريل In this narration now then And the narration, this particular hadith, does have some speech around it in terms of its authenticity. Uh, there is some speech regarding the an'ana of Al-Walid ibn Muslim. Uh, and so there is some speech about this particular narration. But the meaning of it on the whole is supported by the previous narration. It's almost the same. So it's a supporting evidence for what has already preceded in the chapter. And this is something common. People, they say that there are weak hadith in Kitab al-Tawheed. One of the responses to that is that even if there are some narrations in Kitab al-Tawheed quoted by Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, those narrations are not used 
as the basis of his evidence and proof. Those kinds of narrations that do exist of that nature are there in Kitab al-Tawheed for the most part as supporting evidences only. So in this chapter we've already established the ayah, the tafsir of the ayah. This hadith now is almost the same. It is just a supporting evidence in addition to what has already been established. So even if the people, they say there are some weak narrations here and there, those weak narrations do not impact upon Kitab al-Tawheed as a whole. They are only supporting narrations and the usul, the narrations that are used as the basis are already established in all of the chapters and the ayat obviously of the Qur'an. So this narration may have some speech on it regarding the chains, etc. But the meaning of it is authentic. And that is something you are aware of in the sciences of hadith, that sometimes a particular hadith may be deemed as weak in its chains, or in the an'ana of al-Walid ibn Muslim in this case, and one or two other affairs, but that the meaning of the narration is still legitimate and valid in terms of the meaning of the hadith, it is completely in line with the sharia. So in those types of narrations, they will say, you cannot say that the narration is the words of the Prophet a weak narration that is deemed as weak in that way, then you cannot say that these are the words of the Prophet ﷺ. But you can in some instances still say that the meaning of the hadith though, as a hadith in terms of its meaning, it's valid and legitimate. And that's what you'll see here. Even if there is some speech on the chain of narration on it, the meaning of it is completely valid. How do we know? Because it is supported by clear, valid, legitimate evidences besides it. So in this narration then it mentions that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to reveal an affair, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants or wills to reveal an affair, and this, from the very beginning, Sheikh Al-Fawzan makes a point of aqeedah from it, which is the ithbat al-irada lillahi subhanahu wa ta'ala, the affirmation of the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَهِيَ min صِفَاتِهِ And that is one of the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala al-irada dallat alayha al-ayat al-Qur'aniya wal-hadith al-Nabawiya ayat of the Qur'an have affirmed the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and also a hadith from the sunnah have affirmed the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala فالله جل وعلا له إرادة وإرادته على نوعين 
And as you know in the books of Aqidah it is studied that the will of Allah is of two types. The will of Allah is of two types. And this will come in a bit more detail in the chapters later on that talk about the the decree. The chapters that talk about the decree of Allah. Then this is a significant part in fully understanding the decree of Allah. The will of Allah. So here briefly the Shaykh mentions the will of Allah is two types. There is irada. There is the will of Allah in the creational sense. In the creational sense, the will of Allah. And the other type is irada shari'iyya, diniya. The will of Allah in the legislative sense, the religious sense. As for the will of Allah in the creational sense, then we can say very simply, Ma sha Allahu kan wa ma lam yasha lam yakun. Whatever Allah wills, then it will certainly occur. And whatever Allah does not will, then it will certainly not occur. That's the creational sense of the will of Allah. Al-irada al-kawniyyah. Whatever Allah wills in the creation, then it will absolutely occur. And whatever Allah does not will in the creation, then it will absolutely not occur. That is al-iradah al-kawniyyah. Then the other type, al-iradah al-shari'iyyah or al-iradah al-diniyyah, the will of Allah in the legislative sense, in the religious sense, and that is basically what Allah, it is equivalent to what Allah loves. It is equivalent to what Allah loves. Allah loves that everybody should be upon Tawheed. But is everybody upon Tawheed? No. Allah loves that everybody should repent if they commit a sin. But does everybody repent if they commit a sin? No. Allah loves certain affairs. That's the legislative sense. Everything in the religion, all acts of worship, Allah loves that you do them. But does everybody do them? No. So the irada, shari'iyya, what Allah loves, then it is not necessitated that Allah actually decrees it in al-irada, al-kawniyya. And the examples 
they give, and we've done this before many years ago here and in other places, they say these two types of the will of Allah, the creational sense where it will absolutely be as Allah wills, and the religious sense where Allah loves that you should be doing X, Y, and Z, but not necessarily decreed that everybody does it. The irada of Allah in the Islamic sense, Allah loves all of the worship. So now you have those two types. They say, what is an example where both types of the irada are found? What, what is an example where al-irada al-kawniyah is there and al-irada al-shari'iyah is there? An example they give is the Islam of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. This is just an example. You could give so many. The Islam of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu was he a Muslim or not? Muslim. Therefore, we know absolutely in al-irada al-kawniyah, in the creational sense, Allah willed that Abu Bakr as-Siddiq would be a Muslim if Allah hadn't willed it. So Allah willed it that Abu Bakr as-Siddiq would be a Muslim. Did Allah also love that Abu Bakr and anyone should be a Muslim? Absolutely. So al-irada al-shari'iyya is present in the fact that Abu Bakr, for example, radiallahu anhu, was a Muslim and died as a Muslim. Al-irada al-kawniyya was present for that to have occurred. That's just an example of where al-irada al-kawniyya exists, the creational sense, and al-irada al-shari'iyya, what Allah loves. What's an example of where neither al-irada al-kawniyya exists, nor al-irada al-shari'iyya exists? Stick with the same example. Sticking with Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu for now. What is an example of where neither al-irada al-kawniyya exists, nor al-irada al-shari'iyya exists? Okay, that Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu anhu was a non-Muslim. Is that a fact? It's not a fact. It did not occur. Abu Bakr as-Siddiq was a Muslim and died as a Muslim. So this statement that Abu Bakr died as a non-Muslim is factually incorrect. Therefore, al-irada al-kawniyya was certainly not there for Abu Bakr as-Siddiq to be an unbeliever. Absolutely, was not there. Allah did not decree in the creational sense for Abu Bakr as-Siddiq to die as a non-Muslim. Didn't decree that. Hence, Abu Bakr did not die as a non-Muslim. He died as a Muslim. In terms of al-irada al-shari'iyya, would it have been? Would it have been beloved? To Allah that Abu Bakr died as a non-Muslim? <coughs> Absolutely not. So they give that just as an example that this statement, Abu Bakr died as a non-Muslim. 
the iradah kawniya is not present within this so-called fact, which is not a fact, and neither is al-iradah ashariya. Neither did Allah decree that, nor is it something beloved to Allah that anybody dies upon kufr. So now, what's an example of where al-iradah al-kawniya exists, but al-iradah ashariya does not exist. So far we've done two scenarios where al-irada al-kawniya and al-irada ashariya existed, the Islam of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq and the death upon Islam. We've done the second scenario, an example where neither al-irada al-kawniya nor al-irada ashariya exists, and that is the supposed example of Abu Bakr dying upon uh, a lack of Islam. What's an example of al-iradah al-kawniyah existing, but al-iradah ashariyah not existing? Okay. That Abu Talib, Abu Jahl, anyone, died upon kufr. So, did they die upon kufr? They did. Therefore, al-iradah al-kawniyah for them to have died upon kufr was there. But was al-iradah al-shari'iyah for that fact there? Did Allah love that they die upon kufr? Absolutely not. So that's an example of al-iradah al-kawniyah. Allah decreed that from His wisdom and Allah does everything upon wisdom. Decreed that to occur. But is it something which is from al-irada ashariyah that Allah loves anybody dies upon kufr? No. So that's an example of al-irada al-kawniyah existing, not al-irada ashariyah. The death of a person upon kufr. So what's the final example where al-irada ashariyah exists, but al-irada al-kawniyah does not? That's a bit general. Stick to some kind of name, example, like we've been doing. Abu Bakr, Abu Talib, some kind of name there of a particular person, just to make the example clear in everybody's minds. Abu Lahab what? What's the example that Abu Lahab what? Dying upon? But he did? Huh? So... Abu Talib, for example, everybody knows, easier example maybe. Abu Talib dying upon Islam. Did that occur? So, irada kawniyah was not there. But this statement of any kafir, but Abu Talib, Abu Jahl, whoever, dying upon Islam, would that be a fact that is beloved to Allah? Absolutely. So, irada shari'iyah would be there upon this supposed statement. It would be there. But al-iradah al-kawniyah was not there, so Abu Talib did not die upon Islam. Those are the examples, they are the exact ones they used to give us at the university in the curriculum. To understand al-iradah al-kawniyah, al-iradah al-shari'iyah. So there may be affairs that are beloved to Allah, but by the wisdom of Allah, it is decreed in certain ways, maybe sometimes those things don't occur amongst some people. 
Maybe those things don't occur amongst some people. Allah decrees it in al-irada al-kawniya in a particular way. But al-irada al-shari'iyya, Allah loves the legislation, all of the worship and the religion. So when they combine, it is in the fi haqqil muslim in regards to a Muslim who is upon worship, upon obedience, then you have al-irada al-kawniyyah, Allah has decreed it, and you have al-irada al-shari'iyyah, that Allah loves his worship and what he is doing. So those are the two types of al-irada. Then obviously people are going to say, why would Allah decree something in al-irada al-kawniyyah, which is not... Beloved to him, it is not from Al-Irada Ash-Shari'iyah. That is where Ibn Al-Qayyim said, this is the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And sometimes there can be affairs that Allah decrees which we think are bad for us, but ultimately what arises from them is good. An example Ibn Al-Qayyim gives, in fact he mentions a whole list of them, I think almost a hundred. One of the examples he mentions is sins. Is sinning something that is beloved to Allah, irada shari'iyah? No. But, irada kawniyyah, does Allah decree that people commit sins? Sins occur. Ibn al-Qayyim said, one of the wisdoms behind that for mankind, and Allah does everything upon wisdom, is that when a servant falls into a sin, Then after that sin, he realizes and contemplates and ponders and his heart is broken at what he's done. And he then submits and returns back to Allah and repents and seeks forgiveness and tawbah, istighfar. And as a consequence, even becomes better and stronger in his worship after that disaster that he realizes he fell into. So now, some benefit has come to this slave, to this servant, as a consequence of that evil he fell into. So Ibn Qayyim says this is just an example of Allah decreeing something like sins to occur, but then there are great wisdoms behind that for the servant. Maybe from that sin and his broken heart, he contemplates over what he did, he ponders over what he did, he sincerely repents and seeks forgiveness, and that then strengthens him thereafter to a greater level than he was before he had committed the sin. Of course, you have to think about these things very carefully. Because if a person doesn't think about them carefully, then shaitan begins whispering all types of things to you. Does that mean therefore you should purposely go and commit sins? That is only the shaitan whispering to you. Of course not. But it is from the wisdom of Allah that if you fall into a sin then there is something from that that Allah has decreed for you. Tawbah, seeking forgiveness, etc. And Allah mentioned in the hadith Qudsi, كُلُّكُمْ تُخْطِئُونَ بِاللَّيْلِ وَالنَّهَارِ وَأَنَا أَغْفِرُ الظُّنُوبَ جَمِيعًا فَاسْتَغْفِرُونِي أَغْفِرْ لَكُمْ All of you, you fall into sin. That is the nature of mankind. You fall into sin day and night, but I am the one who forgives. So seek your forgiveness from me. And in the other hadith, كُلُّ بَنِي آدَمْ خَطَّاءٍ all of the sons of Adam, they make error, they fall into sin. But the best of those who fall into that are the ones who then repent 
So, we'll come to more details of that on the chapters where it talks specifically about the decree. Here that was a side point at the beginning where it mentions, إِذَا أَرَادَ اللَّهِ If Allah wills, أَنْ يُوحِيَ بِالْأَمْرِ to reveal, to give some revelation of an affair, and you hear Sheikh goes into some details about the different types of the revelation. But when Allah wills to reveal an affair, and this affair, Al Amr, بِالشَّأْنِ مِنْ شُؤُونِ الْكَوْنِ وَالْمَخْلُوقَاتِ أَوْ بِالْأَمْرِ مِنَ الْوَحِيِ الْمُنَزَّلِ عَلَى الرُّسُلِ فَهُوَ عَامٌ Whether this affair is some affair within the creation and what is to occur within the creation, or if it is an affair of actual revelation that comes upon the messengers, whatever type of revelation that may be, if Allah wills for that to occur, then what does he do? Takallama bil wahi. Allah speaks with that revelation. Speaks in a manner that is befitting of his majesty. Remember that phrase? That is a phrase that is used all the time when it comes to the names and attributes of Allah. That Allah does this or that, the various attributes, as is befitting of his majesty. Because as we say, we do not make any resemblance, any comparison, any thoughts of Allah doing something like we do it. We say, as is befitting of His Majesty. So Allah speaks, as is befitting of His Majesty. So then it mentions, فَإِذَا سَمِعَ أَهْلُ السَّمَاوَاتِ Or before that, it mentions, أَخَذَتِ السَّمَاوَاتُ مِنْهُ رَجْفَةِ that the heavens, when Allah speaks, the narrator says, أَخَذَتِ السَّمَاوَاتُ مِنْهُ رَجْفًا And this is a doubt from the narrator. You'll see this a lot in hadith, شَكَّ الرَّاوِي أو شَكٌ مِنَ الرَّاوِي Meaning the Prophet ﷺ didn't say, أَخَذَتِ السَّمَاوَاتُ مِنْهُ رَجْفًا he didn't say both of them. He said one of them, but the narrator was in doubt which one it was. So in the narration, he mentions both that it was one of these two phrases. And the meaning of that is that when the heavens hear the speech of Allah, then fear strikes into them from the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Shaykh al-Fawzan says, فِي هَذَا أَنَّ الْجَمَادَاتِ تُدْرِكُ عَظَمَةَ رَبِّهَا That even the inanimate objects, they comprehend the greatness of their Lord, the might and majesty of their Lord. Even the inanimate objects, the heavens, they are an object, they're not with intellect in terms of angels and mankind, they are an object in that sense, yet they still understand or comprehend and perceive the might and majesty of Allah. 
وَتُسَبِّحُهُ وَتُعَظِّمُهُ And as it's mentioned about the inanimate objects as well, they do the tasbih of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Subhanallah, subhanallah. They do the tasbih of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In the Quran it mentions, تُسَبِّحُ لَهُ السَّمَاوَاتُ السَّبْعُ وَالْأَرْضُ وَمَنْ فِيهِنَّ That the seven heavens and the earth and the inhabitants of them, they do the tasbih of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And there are other examples of this indicating how even the stones, the rocks, the trees, the inanimate objects, they do, they do the tasbih of Allah, but we do not comprehend uh, here the tasbih of Allah. So it mentions that, فَإِذَا سَمِعَ ذَلِكَ أَهْلُ السَّمَاوَاتِ That when the inhabitants of the heavens hear the revelation from Allah, the inhabitants of the heavens are the angels, talking about the angels, the inhabitants of the heavens, when they hear that, سَعِقُوا Meaning that they fall unconscious from fear when they hear Allah speak. Such is that fear that strikes them of their Lord, the greatness and the might and the majesty of Allah. When they hear Allah speak, then they fall unconscious from that. يعني يغشى عليهم من الخوف من الله والهيبة والجلال وخروا لله and then they bow to Allah سجداً in prostration على وجوههم تعظيماً لله وتعبداً لله they then fall down onto their faces in prostration before Allah to highlight their subservience to Allah and the greatness of Allah. The Shaykh says, as Shaykh Al-Fawzan here, the ayah or this here, this section is mentioning that they fall unconscious from the fear and also that they fall in prostration. But then how does that occur if they've fallen unconscious? The Shaykh says, maybe... They initially fall into prostration and then from that fear they fall unconscious. Or it could be that uh, firstly they fall unconscious and then when they regain that consciousness they then prostrate. Uh, that is because wow in the Arabic language as it mentions in the hadith, the wow in the Arabic language, سَعِقُوا وَخَرُوا Wow does not necessitate a tartib. It's like when you say Muhammad and Ahmed came into the mosque. Muhammad and Ahmed came into the mosque. Which one came in first? We don't know. I just said Muhammad and Ahmed came into the mosque. Maybe Muhammad walked in first. Maybe Ahmed walked in first. And by itself doesn't necessitate an order of which one came first. That's what it means. So the and, the wow here, doesn't necessitate an order, a tartib, 
Maybe they fall unconscious first, then they prostrate. Maybe they prostrate and then they fall unconscious. So then Sheikh Al-Fawzan says, فِي هَذَا دَلِيلٌ عَلَىٰ أَنَّ الْمَلَائِكَ This is an evidence therefore that the angels are servants of Allah. يَخَافُونَهُ وَيَهَابُونَهُ they fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they recognize the greatness and the might and the majesty of Allah and they are subservient before Him. So this is a clear refutation once again upon the mushrikun who worship the angels. And they claim that the angels bring them closer to Allah. Like we said last time, the scholars in their books always give the two examples. Like in uh, the, the three fundamental principles. La nabiyun mursal wala malakun muqarrab. That neither, in the context of giving you examples, that neither a prophet who has been sent, nor an angel who has been drawn close, the angels are in the heavens close to Allah. And the prophets are chosen ones sent by Allah. So they both have a great level of status. The prophets and messengers and the angels. Yet if neither of them with that level of status are allowed to be worshipped and called upon, then all others from the great awliya as they claim, they are not at the level of the prophets and messengers and angels. And so if we already established prophets and messengers and angels cannot be called upon, then all of these others besides them, straight away, a blanket refutation, they cannot be called upon either. They cannot be called upon either in that case. So then he says also, فِيهِ دَلِيلٌ عَلَىٰ أَنَّ السَّمَاوَاتِ مُتَعَدِّدَةِ وَأَنَّهَا سَبْعُ From the benefits of the hadith that the heavens are of different levels. The heavens are of different levels. There are multiple heavens. And the scholars have mentioned that the heavens, they go up in levels and the hellfire goes down in Pits. That's why it mentions about the munafiqoon. Inna al-munafiqina fi darkil asfali min al-nar. That the hypocrites are in the lowest pits of the hellfire. Hellfire goes down and down and down in pits, whereas the heavens go up and up in levels. And you know in the hadith of al-Isra al-Mi'raj. The Prophet ﷺ went through the heavens and he saw the different messengers in the different levels of the heavens and of paradise. It goes up in levels, whereas hellfire goes down in pits. So then it mentions in the hadith after the angels have prostrated and they fall unconscious before Allah. That the first one to raise his head is then Jibreel. The first one to raise his head is then Jibreel alayhi salam. And the Shaykh gives a brief 
background regarding the angels. He says, أَعَظَمُ الْمَلَائِكَةِ وَهُوَ مُوَكَّلٌ بِالْوَحِي كَمَا نَعْمُ So Jibreel السلام, is the greatest of all of the angels and his responsibility is revelation. And Mikael muwakkalun bil qatar nabat Mikael given the responsibility of the rainfall and the growth and vegetation. وَإِسْرَافِيلْ مُوَكَّلٌ بِنَفْخِ فِي الصُّورِ And Israfil is given the task and responsibility of blowing into the horn to signal the day of judgment. Those three angels are from the three most famous angels, Jibreel and Mikael and Israfil. Jibreel, the responsibility of revelation, Mikael, the responsibility of the rainfall and growth, and Israfil, the responsibility of blowing the horn. Al-Sheikh Al-Uthaymeen, I think, he mentioned that there is a connection between those three angels in terms of life. How can you make a connection between those three angels with the word life? Anyone? Wait, are you reading from the answer? No, no. I'll go on. That's okay, you're right, but it could be explained a bit better. You're right though. So Jibreel alayhi salam brings down the revelation from Allah. Revelation is life for our hearts. The revelation of the Quran and the Sunnah, that's what brings life to our hearts. The guidance from Allah. Mikael, responsible for the rain and the growth, the food and the vegetation we eat, is life for our physical bodies and Israfil blows into the horn on the day of judgment that is life for us in terms of the afterlife so Jibreel life for our hearts Mikael life for our physical bodies Israfil life for us after resurrection or signaling the life of the resurrection thereafter the afterlife so that is a connection between the angels in life. Then the Sheikh mentions a few others. Uh, there is the angel Uzair. Who is the angel Uzair? Surely somebody's heard that and you use that name. What's the, what's the name that they call the angel of death, some people? No, Malakal Mot, that's the real name, but there's another name. Israel, no, not Israel, something along those lines anyway. There's another word like that they use. Uzair, or Israel, or something along those lines. That name that people use, and it's used widespread amongst people. It is not established. That name is not established for the angel of death. The angel of death is Malakul Mot, the angel of death. And... 
these angels, they have been given different responsibilities, different jobs. There are many other angels, of course. There are angels that are given the responsibility of the wombs, the, the fetus in the wombs, that they blow in the soul into that uh, baby. Uh, and that's mentioned in the hadith, everybody knows in Arba'een, that when one of you is put together in the womb of his mother for 40 days as a clot of blood, as a, a morsel of flesh, that hadith it mentions it, and then the angels are sent to him and blow in the soul to that individual. And there are angels that are given the task of looking after and preserving and noting and recording the actions of Bani Adam. So they write down the good deeds and they write down the bad deeds of every person. And it is by consensus of the Salaf that the angel on your right writes down your good deeds and the angel on your left write down, writes down your bad deeds. So there are angels that record your deeds. And there are angels that have been appointed to God over people, to look after mankind, to look after people. They look after the person from dangers and from harms. And that is in the ayah. لَهُ مُعَقِّبَاتٌ مِّن بَيْنِ يَدَيْهِ وَمِنْ خَلْفِهِ يَحْفَظُونَهُ مِنْ أَمْرِ اللَّهِ So they guard him in regards to the affair and decree of Allah. So that is uh, uh, an affirmation of the angels that look after and guard over mankind also. And there are many other types of angels the Shaykh mentions that we do not know of them. لَا يَعَلَمُهُمْ إِلَّا اللَّهِ when you look at the number of angels that exist, the number of angels that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created. So there are ahadith that tell us about al-baytul ma'mur. What is al-baytul ma'mur? So what is al-baytul ma'mur? So it's like the Kaaba in the heavens. The scholars, they mention, it's highlighted in some of the uh, uh, explanations, etc. Shaykh Abdul Mahsin Abad used to mention it, that Al-Baytul Ma'mur is like the equivalent of the Kaaba that we have here. There is an equivalent of sorts, Al-Baytul Ma'mur, in the heavens. And that it is located where in the heavens? Directly above the Kaaba. If you're at the Kaaba, directly above into the heavens is Al Baytul Ma'mur. And it's mentioned that 70,000 angels go upon the house, Al Baytul Ma'mur in the heavens. 70,000 enter into that area every day. 70,000. When they exit, there is another new group of 70,000 to enter the next day. When they exit the next day, there's a new group of 70,000. 
once a group of 70,000 enters and then exits, they never find opportunity to come back and enter again. So then if you think about that, every day 70,000, how many days in a year? How many in a decade? How many in a hundred years? How many years since the creation of Adam alayhi salam? 70,000 every day. So the numbers when you start to multiply those, they are bigger than the calculators. You get the E figure at the end. You're not going to be able to add those numbers up. Such is the army of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then it mentions in the hadith that Jibreel is the first one to raise his head. ثُمَّ يَمُرُّ جِبْرِيلَ عَلَى الْمَلَائِكَةِ Then Jibreel passes by all of the other angels uh, through the various levels of the heavens. And when he passes through the various levels of the heavens, all of the angels within those levels, كُلَّمَا مَرَّ بِسَمَاءَ سَأَلَهُ مَلَائِكَتُهَا The angels, they ask Jibreel, مَاذَا قَالَ رَبُّنَا يَا جِبْرِيلَ what did our Lord say, O Jibreel? What did our Lord say, O Jibreel? So then Jibreel alayhi salam, he says, فَيَقُولْ قَالَ الْحَقِّ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala spoke the truth. وَهُوَ الْعَلِيِّ الْكَبِيرِ And he is Al-Ali, meaning the most high, Al-Kabir, the greatest, he is the Most High and the Greatest, Al-Ali, Al-Kabir. فَيَقُولُونَ So then the angels, they say, all of them, they say, just as Jibreel said, that Allah, Allah spoke the truth. So هَذَا فِيهِ دَلِيلٌ عَلَىٰ أَنَّ كَلَامَ اللَّهِ حَقٌّ لَا رَيْبَ فِيهِ وَأَنَّ الْمَلَائِكَةَ لَا تَعْلَمُ الْغَيْبِ وَلِذَلِكَ تَسْأَلُ جِبْرِيلٌ This is another example that nobody has knowledge of the unseen. Even the angels do not have knowledge of the unseen. That's why when Jibreel passes through the heavens, they ask him, what did Allah say? Because they don't know. They don't have knowledge of the unseen. They ask Jibreel, what did Allah say? So what are the conclusions and benefits we can take from this? Shaykh Al-Fawzan summarizes it here at the end. Firstly, Al-Mas'alatul Ula Ithbatul Kalami Lillahi Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala The affirmation of speech, the speech of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala and this is from the attributes of Allah that is affirmed وَكَلَّمَ اللَّهُ مُوسَىٰ تَكْلِيمًا That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala spoke to Musa تَكْلِيمًا مَفْعُولْ مُطْلَقْ Indicating Tawqeed An emphasis that Allah spoke to Musa with reality of speech Not any metaphor or simile Allah spoke to Musa And Musa heard but the people of innovation, Ahlul Bid'ah, they make distortion of this ayah. And they will say to you, وَكَلَّمَ اللَّهَ مُوسَىٰ تَكْلِيمًا Which then means that Musa spoke to Allah. And it doesn't mean that Allah spoke to Musa. 
They, they say Musa spoke to Allah, Allah didn't speak to him because they don't want to affirm the attribute of speech to Allah. And then they go into all types of exaggeration. If they don't want to affirm the speech of Allah, then what are they going to say about the Qur'an? How do they say the Qur'an was revealed and if Allah never spoke it? Because Allah apparently to them doesn't have the attribute of speech. So then how was the Qur'an revealed according to some of them? Some of these groups of innovation. Some of them say that it's a bit like the word we use these days, telepathic. They say there was something that occurred where Jibreel was made to understand the Qur'an from Allah without Allah speaking it. That something occurred that Allah inserted somehow that Qur'an into Jibreel without actually speaking it. Jibreel didn't actually hear anything. It just somehow transferred into him. Completely made up, no evidence for that whatsoever. Some of them say that the Qur'an is where in the heavens? It is in the Al-Lawhul Mahfuz, in the preserved tablet. So some of them say, Jibreel alayhi salam didn't hear the Qur'an from Allah because apparently to them, Allah doesn't have the attribute of speech. They say Jibreel just went to the preserved tablet and got the Qur'an. And then he came and taught the Prophet Again, completely false, not a scrap of evidence to suggest that or indicate that. Rather, what is known is that Allah spoke and it was heard and that the voice and the words and it was heard and Jibreel alayhi salam then came and narrated that to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and taught him. So that is the first benefit, ithbatul kalami lillah, the affirmation of speech to Allah. And don't be surprised when we talk about the people of innovation used to say that, it's not used to say that and gone. To this day, these types of false aqidah, they exist amongst the people of innovation. To this day, the misguided ones have these false beliefs in aqidah, and they have false interpretations in names and attributes. They have misguided beliefs in this core of the religion, let alone anything else. The second affair, the second benefit, إِثْبَاتُ الْإِدْرَاكِ لِلْسَمَاوَاتِ وَالْخَوْفِ مِنَ اللَّهِ That the inanimate objects, they perceive and comprehend the might and majesty of Allah and they fear from Allah. وَأَنَّهَا تُدْرِكُ عَظَمَةَ اللَّهِ وَتَخَافُهُ وَهِيَ جَمَادَاتِ They understand and perceive and comprehend the greatness of Allah and fear Him and they are only inanimate objects. So the Shaykh says, if those inanimate objects, the heavens, they comprehend the greatness of Allah, the might and majesty of Allah, and they fear Allah, then كَيْفَ لَا يَخَافُهُ إِبْنُ أَدَمَ Then how can mankind, the sons of Adam, not fear Allah? And what are you in your creation? Compared to the creation of the heavens, the heavens, the size and the might of how they've been created. What are we compared to that? If they are fearful of Allah with their expansive size they've been created upon, then what therefore of us a miskeen, small creation from the creations of Allah? 
And also the angels themselves, they've been created upon a great, magnificent level of creation also. As we mentioned last time, a bird would take years to fly from the earlobe to the shoulder, years to fly that distance. How big are the angels? And yet they fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They fall in prostration before Allah in subservience. They fall unconscious in fear. And so if they are upon that state, despite their power themselves in the way they've been created by Allah, then what therefore of us fuqara ilallah? We are ibadun muhtajuna ilallah. We are in need of our Lord Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and we are in poverty before Him. And then in conclusion, the final parts the Shaykh mentions, fihi dalilun ala ta'adheem kalamillah. We have already established an evidence regarding the attribute of speech for Allah, but also the way that the angels behave when they hear the speech of Allah indicates that when you hear the speech of Allah, you are to show respect. Look at how the angels behave when they hear the speech of Allah. So when you hear the speech of Allah, the Qur'an, the ayat, then you are to submit yourself and be humble and have humility and have respect. And that's why with the Qur'an, there are mannerisms, mannerisms in how a person behaves with the Qur'an. So for example, you do not talk over the Qur'an. It is not suitable that you play the Qur'an in the background and everybody talking and doing their thing and nobody paying attention. Rather, you pay attention to it when it's being recited, when it's being played. So there are various things. Seek isti'adha before you start reciting it. Seek refuge from the shaitan in Allah. Seek refuge in Allah to protect you from the whisperings of the shaitan and causing you to forget and causing you to have issues in the recitation. Uh, making wudu, as many of the scholars say, before you touch the actual physical mushaf, uh, according to many of the opinions of the scholars. So there is a lot regarding the Qur'an and the respect you have for the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The fifth point is Fadlu Jibreel, the great virtue of Jibreel from the, all of the angels. The first one to arise is Jibreel, and that's why he was known as as well, Al. One of the names of Jibreel, same as the messenger, one of his names was Al-Ameen, the trustworthy one. The trustworthy one, Jibreel alayhi salam, who came with the revelation to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And yet the people of innovation, the Shia, they say Jibreel alayhi salam was not trustworthy. He was supposed to, as one of their claims, he was supposed to actually bring the revelation to make the final messenger Ali radiallahu anh. But he made a mistake and he went to Muhammad and gave him the Quran instead and he became the final messenger. Such is the level of the claims and the misguidance and the lies from the misguided ones. And also, فِيهِ دَلِيلٌ عَلَى مَا ذَكَرْنَا أَنَّ السَّمَوَاتِ The evidence that the heavens are of levels and also a dalil ala anna al-malaika kullun lahu amal muwakkalun bih. That all of the angels, they have their specific tasks and duties that they have been given. So that chapter and those evidences highlight to you proofs 
against the actions of the people of innovation, the mushrikun, the deviants, who go and seek intercession at the graves, they call upon the dead, they call upon the alive. When they go to their maulanas, etc., and they wipe over them, and they claim they can uh, answer your dua for you and give you what you want, all of those types of affairs are nullified by these evidences in this chapter from the angle that if a creation as great as the angels have no right to be worshipped, then certainly any human, this weak, miskin human, has no right to be worshipped no matter whatever level you claim he's got to. That brings us to the end of that particular chapter. And then the next chapter begins with Babu Shafa'ah, the chapter regarding intercession. Uh, any questions or anything before going into any further? Al Ilah and Al Ma'bud essentially they mean the same thing. Because Al-Ilah, it is from the Arabic of Aliha Ya'lahu Al-Ma'lu, which is the same, it's a synonym to Abada Ya'budu Al-Ma'bud. So Al-Ma'lu is the same as Al-Ma'bud. It means the one who is worshipped. It's a synonym basically, has the same meaning, same verb, Aliha Ya'lahu Abada Ya'budu, to worship. So if Allah wills for someone to be misguided, and how is that person then accountable on the Day of Judgment? Because if he was misguided, then al-irada al-kawniyya, the creational one, definitely was there. He wouldn't have been misguided otherwise. So that was definitely there. Al-irada shar'iyya was not there. So if a person is now misguided, dies as a kafir, that was decreed for him in al-irada, al-kawniyyah, then why is that person responsible on the day of judgment? And why is he going to be thrown into the hellfire? It was in al-irada, al-kawniyyah, that he was going to be misguided. He wouldn't have been misguided otherwise. So why is he responsible? You gotta explain properly. Imagine some now comes up to you and starts giving you this doubt. What are you gonna to say to them? Yeah, he, does, he doesn't know where he's gonna end up because he's in the hellfire or jungle. So and he still has the free will to imitate the means and acts. So kind of. So it goes back down to this concept of wama tashauna illa an yasha Allah rabbul alamin. Allah tells us, you do not will to do anything except that you are preceded by the will of Allah. Meaning anything you do, Allah already knows you're going to do that and it's been decreed by Allah. But the point is, at the moment when you do an action, Allah has given you two things. One is al-irada and the other is al-qudrah. You've been given these two things, al-irada and al-qudrah. Al-irada is intention and your will. I make my intention, I will, that I want to pick up this bottle of water and drink it. So I, I make that irada. 
I make that will that I'm going to pick up this bottle of water and drink it. So that's one thing. What's the other thing I need to make that happen? Al-Qudra. I need the ability. So Allah's given me the irada and Allah's given me the ability. So now I make my irada. I want to pick up that bottle. Allah's given me the qudra. So then with my irada and my qudra, I do the action. That is two things Allah's given you. Irada and qudra. With those two things, you in your life are choosing to do what you do. So if I now make the irada to pick up the bottle and do it, I've done that just now. I've done it here. Did anybody force me to do it? Was I somehow thinking to myself, I don't want to pick it up, but my hand is going and picking it up? No. Allah gave you irada and gave you ability, which is the core of why you are accountable on what you do. Because every sin that a person does, or shirk, or whatever a person does, he does it with his irada, and then the qudra that Allah has given him. A person decides he's going to prostrate to the idols, he makes the irada, and then he uses his qudra to do it. Allah has given you those two things. So every sin you commit, you are committing it upon those two things. When you make your irada and then you use your qudra to pick something up, now this bottle. Did Allah already know that I was going to make that irada and do that thing? Allah already knew. That's why in the hadith it mentions it is already known who's going to be in hellfire and who's going to be in paradise. Because Allah already knows in your lifetime which irada you're going to make and what you're going to do with your irada. If you're going to be a person with your irada always chooses and goes down the path of bid'ah, innovation, shirk. Allah knows that. Knows what irada you're going to be making in your lifetime. So Allah already knows what your end result is going to be. But you right now as a person who is alive, when you make your decision to do something, prior to you making that decision, prior to you doing it, do you know yourself what your end result is yet? You don't know what your end result is yet. So you, when you have the option to use your irada for tawheed and sunnah, or to use your irada for sinning and shirk, you should always strive to just make your irada to tawheed and sunnah and worship of Allah. That's where you are supposed to make your irada, use your qudra and do that. But a person who uses his irada and qudra to do sin and shirk, then he is the one who's making the decision at the time of his action, even though prior to him making his decision, Allah already knew he was going to make that decision. So this is the simple thing. Allah's given you the irada and qudra to do what you are going to do. But Allah already knows. So the people of shirk who die upon shirk, they used their irada, they used their qudra to be upon shirk. Allah already knew they were going to use their irada, their qudra to be upon shirk. And so that was what Allah had decreed for them, knowing already they are the decisions those people were going to make. So it is not like the people of innovation say that we are like a feather in the wind. 
There are two groups of deviants when it comes to the decree on this issue. There is one side of them who say that we are like a feather in the wind. And they mean by that, a feather in the wind, which way does it go? Whichever way the wind blows it. They say that's what we're like. We have no choice in anything. We just go whichever way the decree has been written. But if that's the case, then anybody who dies as a Muslim, why does he deserve to go paradise? He was just following through the decree like a feather in the wind. No choice of his own to do good. And a person who dies upon shirk, why is he deserving of the hellfire? If he was just like a feather being forced by the decree to do this or that, that can't be right. And the others, they are, they are the Jabariyah. The other side, the Qadariyah, the extreme, the Ghulat of the Qadariyah, they say Allah doesn't even know what we're going to do before we do it. Those Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah mentioned, they basically disappeared. They existed in the early centuries, extreme Qadariyah, believing that we create our actions, Allah doesn't even know what we're going to do before we do it. But they, Shaykh al-Islam said, kind of disappeared. But then the remnants of them, the ones who remained, are still the ones who say that we have complete control and free will and it's outside of the decree of Allah. They are the opposite to the ones who say we are compelled and we are forced. These ones say that Allah hasn't got the control over the decree to the level that it is supposed to be. Extreme on the other side. Ahlul Sunnah in the middle. Neither do we say we're compelled to do anything. Neither do we say we have free will outside of the will of Allah. We have free will. Allah gave us free will. That's why we're accountable on our actions. But that free will that we are using in our lives to either be obedient or disobedient, every time we use that will to do something, Allah already knows what we were going to choose whether we were going to choose good or choose bad. So it's known to Allah, but at the moment of doing it, Allah has given you the free will to choose. Hence you are accountable, and it is not the case that you have not been given will, and you are just simply following through like a feather in the wind with what the decree has for you. If that was the case, then you're right, there'd be no accountability. Anybody else? How many types of dhulm? The types of dhulm are mentioned in that hadith where the, uh, it's mentioned, Ya ibadi, inni harramtu dhulma ala nafsi wa ja'altuhu baynakum muharraman fala tadhalamu. That, O oh my servants, I have made dhulm haram upon myself. That Allah does not do dhulm to anyone. And I have made dhulm haram amongst, between yourselves. So do not oppress one another. Tadalamu musharaka. Do not oppress one another. So dhulm then, what is the actual meaning of the word dhulm in the Arabic language? 
Aha. Zulm in the Arabic language, it refers to putting something out of its rightful place. Putting something out of its rightful place. Misplacing it in a place where it should not be. You go put this mic in the corner of the mosque, you're doing zulm. What's the purpose of the mic in the corner of the mosque? It is placed out of its place. That's the meaning of it linguistically. So when you do sins, etc., you're doing zulm. Because you're now doing an action out of what you should be doing. You're using your qudra out of where you should be using it. So then the types of zulm, what are they? Very easy. One is the zulm, which is the zulm bain al-abdi wa rabbihi. The zulm between yourself and your Lord. And that is the greatest type of zulm. Inna shirka la zulmun azim. That indeed shirk is a great zulm. We covered this at the beginning. In the ayah. Alladheena amanu wa lam yalbisu imanahum bi zulm. That those who believe and they do not mix their iman with zulm. The companions when they heard this hadith. Or this ayah. That those who have iman and do not mix their iman with zulm. They were very saddened and confused because they thought, how can any of us apply that? All of us we commit a little bit of zulm. So then they went to the Prophet ﷺ asking him about the ayah. How can it be? All of us we fall into zulm. So then the messenger explained to them, It is not as what you think. Not what you think. It is rather as it is mentioned, That shirk is a great zulm. So the first type of zulm is the zulm, the oppression, the wrongdoing between yourself and your Lord. And if you die upon that type of zulm, the hukum on it is, we've done it. The hukum on it is, Allah does not forgive that you commit shirk with him. So that will not be forgiven, that type of zulm. The second type of zulm, بين العبد والناس that you do zulm to other people, you oppress other people, wronging them in whatever way, backbiting, storytelling, tale carrying, stealing, beating them up, whatever it might be, you oppress other people. If you do that type of zulm and die upon it, not having repented, what is the hukum? Is it forgiven or not? It is not forgiven either. However, it's a little bit different in terms of the end result. It's not forgiven. So what is done then? Al-Iqtisas. That the rights are given back to the people that you oppressed. The hadith, Atadruna man al-muflis. Do you know who the bankrupt one is? The companion said, Man la dirhama wa la dinara lah. The one who doesn't have any gold or silver, no money. So then the Prophet explained to them, No, the muflis on yawmul qiyamah, the bankrupt one on the day of judgment is the one who used to do worship. Prayer, zakat, fasting, hajj, etc. But at the same time, that he uh, abuses this one, takes the right of that one, swears at that one, beats this one. So then on the day of judgment, all of those people will come and take their rights back from him. And if all of his good deeds run out and there are still people waiting to take their rights, they will then take some of their evil deeds and cast them upon him. The third type of zulm, the zulm that you do to yourself, and that is through sinning. When you sin, you are doing zulm to yourself. 
because you are now putting yourself in line for punishment. That's dhulm to yourself then. And what is the ruling upon that type? If you do dhulm to yourself and die, not having repented, the hukam is generally that it will be under the will of Allah. Maybe you'll be forgiven for those sins that you did to yourself. Maybe you'll be punished initially to cleanse you of those sins before then being entered into paradise. So those are the three types of dhulm. And yes, you could say there is a connection. You could say there's a connection to kibar because a person who commits sin, it is as though he is being arrogant upon the rulings of the religion and as though he's not fearful of the punishment. So there's an element of arrogance within him when he commits sins as though he doesn't care about the punishment, as though he's not fearful of the rulings and he still goes and commits sins. Some questions here, we'll just finish off on these ones. One says, are we allowed to listen to non-Salafi Qur'an reciters for the purpose of correcting tajweed and personal Qur'an studies? Would we be able to share the reciter's name, audio, to other sisters for the purpose of learning? The general answer obviously is, if you can find... Salafi reciters, known Salafi reciters, that is obviously better. And they are available. It's not like there are no Salafi reciters. In fact, in Medina, who is known as the head of the reciters, basically? Sheikh Ali Al-Hudayfi. He's known to be superior to all of the others. Known since 20 years ago when we were there. They used to call him the king of the Tajweed. Meaning, or the master of the Tajweed. That he was the best in his recitation, in his tajweed. So that is an example. And there will be other examples, I'm sure, of known reciters. These days you go onto these apps, there's like a million people there. There are bound to be reciters who are known to be upon the correct aqidah, the correct manhaj, the correct way. So you should look for those kinds of reciters first. You should look to find those recordings, tajweed, like you say, Ali al-Hudayfi is one of the best ones to learn from in any case. One of the best ones for the actual pronunciation of the words, and he is slow and easy to follow and to learn from. That's a good example. You should try to stick to those. Other reciters, some of them, most of them these days, there won't really be anything known about them. They are just reciters. As Shaykh Rabia said about some of them, leave them as reciters. That's all they are. Nothing else is known about them. They have no lessons, durus, nothing. They're not teachers. They are just reciters. They are not anything else. They don't have any other audios, lectures, nothing. They're not even khatib of a mosque or anything. They are just reciters. If you are in need and you cannot genuinely find a Salafi, which I can't believe would be the case, then those people who are just reciters, as Sheikh Rabia said, leave them as reciters. They are reciters. You listen to them as reciters. You may learn to read from them as reciters, and they are not known for anything else. They are not teachers, they are not lecturers, they are nothing else. Purely just for recitation, and if that's the case, if you need to, but I don't think you do. I think you will find, inshallah, if you look, that there are good reciters known to be upon righteousness. And it's not just Sha'i al-Hudayfi, there are others from Medina 
known to be upon Salafiyyah from the Imams of the Haram in the past. So you could have a look at some of those and try and find some of those, inshallah, it's better. Because if you share others who are known for other lectures and they give khutbahs and they do other things because a lot of reciters are imams of mosques. So they have khutbahs that are recorded and distributed. If you end up maybe sharing some of those reciters and you don't even know, and he could be one of the worst ikhwanis. And some of his khutbahs may be some of the worst against the methodology of Ahlul Sunnah and speaking against the rulers, who knows? So it's better to try and find the Salafi reciters. And then if you are stuck, you can look into others otherwise. Are we allowed to mix Zamzam water with other water and dilute the water for the purpose of drinking? Scholars have said it's permissible. You can put other water in with it to drink it. And also to use Zamzam for the following wudu, applying to skin after hijama, applying on the body during illness. It's allowed, generally the scholars say, for any of those kinds of purposes. You can make wudu with it. There are fatwas of the scholars. You can use Zamzam to make wudu with it. You can apply it to your skin after the hijama, just zamzam water. It can be used for that. It can be used as water is used. You can use the zamzam as water. The scholars, they say you can use it for all these different purposes as well. It is allowed. There is no prohibition that you cannot use zamzam for X, Y, or Z. Generally, generally, it can be used as water is used. The only one is this last one, which perhaps you may need to look into further, applying it on the body. We know that the narrations, they say that the zamzam is a lima lahu, and it is a means of cure, etc. as well. But application on the body like that, Allah alam about that. But in terms of drinking, then there's no problem with that. And in terms of wudu and putting it on your skin after hijama, those kinds of things, the scholars do, do not have any issue with that usage. We'll stop on that for today then. Next week we'll carry on. And uh, inshallah, next week will be usual Saturday, the 2nd of July. Then the week after that is going to be off. It's going to be Eid weekend. 9th of July, 10th of July is going to be Eid. So that week will be off and then we'll be back again on the 16th inshallah. So next week as usual. We'll continue quarter past eight, insha'Allah ta'ala. Wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa